there we go. There's some fear and trepidation in that clapping. <laughs> what is he going to say today? Uh, nothing shocking, I promise. Well, no, actually, I can't promise that. But I will preach the text. And uh, today we are still in Ephesians chapter 3. Uh, um, again, as, as uh, our brother Toby just said, we don't need lengthy introductions. Um, I've had the great grace of serving you in the ministering of the word. Yes, excuse me, yesterday, and I hope to, uh, to do so today uh, with the same passion and fervency. Um, what Sib just brought up in his interview is actually apropos uh, to what we will be looking at in Ephesians chapter 3. Uh, I want you to go ahead and get there. We're going to go all the way through verse 13, 1 through verse 13, and, uh, and I want to come back to that in a moment. And, uh, and I pray that this uh, text would be incredibly encouraging to you uh, in what the Lord has to say to his ministers of the gospel. Read with me there, uh, starting in verse 1, as Paul continues his letter. He says, For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. And then he breaks. You didn't pick that thought back up again until verse 14. And so what we're going to look at is the uh, lengthy uh, excursus, if you will, uh, of him establishing the nature of his work, why it matters, and what it is that God is doing in the world through faithful ministers of the gospel. Read on. Assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I've written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things, so that through the church, you have underline that, the manifold wisdom of God might be now, or might now rather be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart. Hear me. I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is for your glory. Pray for me, and I'm going to pray for you, and then we will take the next 40 minutes or so to examine the beautiful mystery that has been left and laid with us that can only be revealed through this eternal institution called the church. Let's pray. Father, grant us again the grace now of hearing 
of receiving. Father, I'm a man foolish in all my ways. You are the living God. And so I pray now that you remove me in all ways that you must, that I not be a stumbling block or a hindrance to what you have to say to your people today. Speak now, God, and let us hear from the depth of wisdom that can only be possessed by the everlasting. And let us know when we leave this moment that we've been face to face with the living God. All God's people said, amen. amen. As our brother just shared, and, and it really was fortuitous uh, for him to share, uh, I had already intended to say to you that this work is not an easy task. That what lies ahead in church planting and pastoring and ministry of any kind is often incredible discouragement, difficulty, hurdles. I shared with you very briefly yesterday about the 120 or so people who left our church last fall. This was a tenth of our congregation. These were people that I had labored with, cried with, sweated with, walked with. And in a moment, they were gone. It was one of the lowest moments of discouragement in recent years that I can remember related to ministry. And I wanted to quit. I wanted to give up. I wanted to walk away. By God's grace, I, I am not uh, one of those pastors who left high school and went to Bible college. I went and got a secular degree, and all the time I dream about all the money I could be making and all the problems I don't have to have. Look, there's a few of y'all out there, business folks, that I can be stacking bread right now. <laughs> Go to church, be a great small group leader, tithe at 15%. You would be pleased. <laughs> I had reached an incredibly low point where, if I'm honest, even the dream that I shared with you yesterday, I had began to falter in believing it's possibility. And I went to an older minister, friend of mine, a pastor who has spoken into my life for years, and I said, hey, Pop, I'm done. I'm finished. I don't need this. I've given my whole life to these people, and they, in return, have spat in my face. And he grabbed me up by the scruff of my collar, as it were. Now, he really couldn't do that because he's only about 5'5 five, five and 110 pounds. But verbally, <laughs> he grabbed me up by the scruff of my neck and he looked me in my eyes. And he said, you are not an owner, but a steward. You are not an owner, but a steward. And what it is that you have been entrusted to, son, is the only eternal institution at work in the world today. And so you get your eyes off of your sorrow, off of your self-loathing, and on to Christ. And he will empower you to endure. He will empower you to endure. What we have is the, the workers of the ministry of the gospel 
It is not an easy task. It will, it will not always feel life-giving. It will not always feel as though it is fruitful, as though you are worthy, adequate, as though it's worth it. And yet what we must hold in tension is that we are not owners, we are stewards. And as stewards, we've been granted every gift that we need to navigate guiding God's people to a greater revelation of him. And the church, in all of its messiness, is still one of the most beautiful things that God ever created. That's what we have before us today. I've got three points, if you want to write them down, that I will try and contain the wonders of these words in. The first one is a particular responsibility. A particular responsibility. Number two is a peculiar mystery. A peculiar mystery. And number three is a purposeful institution. A purposeful institution. We're going to begin back in verse 2 with Paul's words that, that he begins in this excursus. He says, assuming, or rather I assume, I assume that you have indeed heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. I assume that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. Paul is establishing his qualification before them for everything that he's previously written. We'll get into that in a moment. Helping them to understand that at, that at some particular point in time, God deemed him, him uh, worthy not because of his aptitude and not because of his knowledge and not because of his learning and not because of his eloquence or oratory ability, but simply because God decided to place his hand on him that now he would be a steward of the grace and mystery of God to the Gentile people. We all are probably familiar with that moment. Paul, the great persecutor of the church, is heading to do what he did best. Instill fear in God's new people. To dissuade them from believing on Jesus. To disrupt their worship and their life in any manner possible. That's what we read in the book of Acts. And then all of a sudden, a bright light appears and it knocks him from his steed and he is blinded by an encounter with Jesus. And Jesus asked him one question. Do you remember what it is? Come on, preachers. Don't shame yourself. Why do you persecute my people? And then he blinded him. We know the rest of the story. He goes and sees a man who, for all reasons and purposes, should fear him absolutely, but because of the command of God, welcomes him into his home. 
prays for him, ministers to him. Paul receives the revelation of who Jesus really is and the, and the weight of the ministry that he is going to participate in and the scales fall from his eyes and from that moment he is never the same. Do you remember what the Lord said to the man who would minister to Paul? I will show him all of the things that he must suffer for my name's sake. Paul is in prison writing this letter. In the midst of that very suffering, living out of the words that Jesus spoke over his life, living out the weight of what it means to be a steward of the mystery of this gospel. And so I say to you and I say to myself, when, when faced with what seems to be insurmountable, when faced with incredible discouragement, when, when faced with a desire to walk away, to quit, to hang it up, to be done, we can't do this. This plant will never happen. I'll never get out of the blocks. I don't have the people I need. I don't have the money I need. Never forget the words that Jesus spoke over the life of Paul. They will know all that they must suffer for my name's sake. You see, this is our particular responsibility. It is what comes with the hand of God resting on you for the unique call of leading in his people and leading in his church. Suffering and leadership are synonymous it is what we had walked into. And here we find a man who has suffered greatly, but is not dissuaded because he understands the nature of what it is that he is stewarding. He understands the nature of the call that God has placed on his life. We'll get there in a moment, but I'll, I'll say it now for, for the sake of cohesion. That's why he tells them in verse 13, do not lose heart over what I'm suffering for you. You know, that could equally be translated, pray that I do not lose heart. If for those of you who are all about your Greek syntax, I ask that you pray that I do not lose heart at all that I'm suffering for you. Paul is first and foremost a steward. We are first and foremost stewards of the incredible mystery, the revelation of Christ Jesus. Not only stewards, but servants, if you're writing down. Not only stewards, but servants. There in verse 7, if you want to jump down, it says, Of this gospel I was made a minister. God bless you. Please don't die. Of this gospel I was made a minister. According to the gift of God's grace, that word their minister is actually translated servant in the Greek. Paul says here that he is a servant of the gospel according to the gift of God's grace, which was given him by the working of his power. Now, what does it mean to be a servant of the gospel? 
You see, that English word, their minister, it loses, the, it, it loses the power of what he's writing to these people, especially for, for Westerners, because when we think minister, we think activity. We don't think bondage. But what Paul is saying here is that I am bound, bound to, bound by, bound to the ends of, bound to the means of, bound in every respect to the outworkings of the gospel. That it is my plumb line. It is that which tugs my heart in its proper direction. It is that which I align my life around. It is that which I proclaim. It is that which controls me and constrains me in the love of Christ, as he says in 1 Corinthians. I'm a slave to the gospel. Not to techniques, not to pragmatics, not to the next best thing that I believe is going to produce the best results but to the gospel and its power. And I've been made a servant of this gospel according to the gift of God's grace. Let me tell you something. I'll be honest. Maybe you can be honest too. 50% of the time, I don't see it as a gift of grace to be a slave to the gospel. Is that okay to say? I'm not a Teflon Don. Stuff sticks to me. Doesn't just slide off. I don't see it as a, as a gift grace, or grace gift rather, to be a servant of the ends of the gospel. It is much easier. It is much easier to be a, a servant to my will. It is much easier to be a servant to my ingenuity. It is much easier to be a servant to my innovation. It is much easier to be a servant to my emotions, to, to, to the fragility of my humanity. It is much easier to be a servant to the will of people who I don't want to offend. It is much easier to be a servant to the pressure that you feel to perform. Much easier. Much easier. I remember in the early days, we launched Renovation Church on a, on a snowy Sunday in Atlanta. And by God's grace, 170 people showed up for that first worship service. And through the sheer power of the Holy Spirit and dynamic preaching, I had preached that thing down to 75 by February. And I remember feeling this pressure to drift from the fidelity of what I knew to be true. Because Perimeter Church had given me $100,000 and I got to make good on this investment. I got to make good on that money. And 75 people, that ain't making good on it. And where our church is located, we say that it's in the prosperity pragmatism triangle. If you don't know where Atlanta is, we've got all the big names. 
Long, Dollar, Stanley. And we're in the center, literal geographic center of all of their work. And I'm like, that's where they're going. And so, and, and, and so maybe, maybe if I just give a few more steps, we'll draw a few more people. And maybe if I ease up on this suffering talk and tell them that, that God's got a plan for their life, <laughs> then we'll draw a few more people. And maybe if I just, just give up on this whole transcultural nonsense and just, and just let it fill up with Presbyterians, we'll draw a few more people. Can I just be real with you? That's the conversation I had in my heart. It is much easier to serve every other means and ends around doing ministry than it is to be a slave to the gospel and its ends. But what fruit will it produce? What kind of church will it plant? What kind of lasting power will it have? And so brothers and sisters, I implore you in those moments, remember that you can be no less than this, a steward, not an owner, a servant to the ends of the gospel and nothing else. Because it is a gift of grace. It is a gift of grace that God would look to you among the masses, not because you're particularly gifted and not because you're particularly eloquent and not because you're particularly knowledgeable, but because he says, I want you. That means that you don't have to try to be nobody else. Stop listening to podcasts and trying to pattern your preaching after other people. Find your voice. That was one of those prophetic asides. You know who I'm talking to. We're stewards, not owners. We are servants to the ends of the gospel and nothing less. That is our particular responsibility. But stewards of what? Stewards of what? Of a very peculiar mystery. Of a very peculiar mystery. We'll read it through again. Verse 2, he says, assuming, I assume that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. How the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. How the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. A peculiar mystery. When I read this, I was talking to Brother Steve last night, and I said, man, I really dropped a lot of bombs yesterday uh, about this 
oneness that is supposed to exist in the church. And here it is again in chapter 3, and I don't feel like repeating that. And of course, he said, Leonce, if the Spirit wrote it again, it it bears repeating. (laughs) A peculiar mystery. A peculiar mystery that by the only means possible, and I won't belabor the point because we did exhaust it yesterday, but Paul sees that it bears repeating. That's what he means when he said what I wrote briefly. He's literally speaking of verses, or, or verses 11 through 22 in chapter, in chapter 2. Go back and look at it again, he says. This peculiar mystery that, that by the only means possible, the edifying work of the Holy Spirit, the overwhelming nature of the gospel, the sacrificial death of the Lord Jesus Christ, those who would otherwise not be a people can suddenly be a people. Those who would otherwise not involve themselves in the affairs of one another's lives can suddenly be united as one. Now, of course, as we said yesterday, we know contextually this is, this is speaking of Jews and Gentiles. But applicably, it is speaking of all peoples of all generations. And so what Paul is telling them is that this has been a mystery. That ages and ages and ages have passed. And those who were knowledgeable and those who understood, even Issachar, the men of Issachar who knew the signs of the times had not yet had revealed to them God's intentions fully of uniting those who were not Jewish with those who were. That God would have one people, one family, one united community, all under the banner of Christ. Now, this has been laid out twice for us in just a few verses. Can, Can we not, if we're not ready to take a step toward actualizing the words here, can we not at least acknowledge that it is something that God desperately longs for? This is what he wants to see, that we would not live in our continued humanistic divisions that allow us the comfort, the comfort of no ability. Let me tell you something, and I'm just, uh, as I always said, I'm going to be real with you. I do, in fact, prefer to hang out with black people. Strangely enough, so does my wife, who is not black. That's her thing. I don't, I can't help her. But I do. In my flesh, I prefer ethnic minorities as a whole. I do. Absolutely, I do. And so then how... Do I, as an individual, I'm not going to talk about your church, I'm not going to talk about your choices, I'm not going to talk about the staffing that you should do or the leadership appointments that you should do, but just you in your relationship. Sib hit on it yesterday. What does your relational circle look like? Who do you cry to when your life's falling apart? 
Who keeps your kids when you got to go on date night? Who's at your dinner table when you make your favorite meal? If they all look like you, then you have sidestepped the revelation of this mystery. You sidestep the revelation of this mystery. And hear that not from a position of, listen to me because I figured it all out. Here it is, every day this is a struggle for me too. Pastor Ralph is one of our African-American pastors. I get along with him more naturally. Who do I travel with? Pastor Copper. Because that's my little brother. And I love him. He's a white kid over there with the crazy hair. Pastor Ethan is one of our elders. He's, he, he, he's also a white brother. He's the one that I've struggled with the most relationally. Because he, he still walks in a certain bravado that only comes from living a life of privilege. And so sometimes I got to break that brother down and he don't like it. What equal relationships do you have with people who do not look like you? Equal. Not paternalistic, not generous. Equal. I'll take it one step further. What authority-laden relationships do you have with people who do not look like you? I've got a very dear friend named John Hardy, who's a, a Presbyterian pastor in Atlanta. And, if, and if, have you, if you hadn't gotten it yet, I'm Presbyterian, which is why I make fun of Presbyterians so much. Uh, and why I like to watch them transition from worshiping like this to right here. This is a win. This is a win. <laughs> when I can get them to here, I know the gospel is at work. Uh, and John and I were in a, in a very rich conversation around these very issues. And he said to me, in a, in a moment of confession, which I thought was beautiful, he said to me, you know, I never thought I could be in submission to an African-American's authority until I was at Princeton in a class with Cornell West and realized that he was my intellectual superior. Now, that's as real as real can get. And this is a man who, who, by all accounts, I would not call him a racist man. He's a loving man. He's a kind man. He's, he's got a, a relatively diverse church as far as Presbyterian churches go. And, and still he could not envision a reality prior to that moment for him some 15 years ago where he would be submitted to the authority of an ethnic minority. He'd sidestepped the revelation of this mystery. And yet this is the mystery that we steward. That where the world says stick with your own and the world says that's not possible and the world says you have nothing in common and the world says that your backgrounds are different and the world says that your economic disparity can, can only create a, a paternalistic relationship. The gospel says that under the banner of Christ and at the foot of the cross, everyone stands equal. And therefore, we can exist in these mutually affirming, mutually edifying, 
mutually loving, mutually submitted, Christocentric, gospel-saturated, Holy Spirit-filled relationships that makes the world peer in and wonder how they do that. It's a little colloquialism for you. How do they go about pulling off such an extraordinary thing? How does that happen? And so the burden is on us then to steward this peculiar mystery. Now it's there in black and white. We can read it again. I don't want you to be uncomfortable with it, but, but the, the, the ideas are, are very, very clear that we are fellow heirs, which means that we are equals, that we are members of the same body, which means that we are family, that we are partakers of the promise of Christ Jesus through the gospel, which means that we have all been endued with the same glorious grace that allows us to be one wondrous family. A particular responsibility, a peculiar mystery. Oh, let me say this, just as an aside, sorry. There are indeed contexts where, where ethnic homogeny is a reality that cannot be avoided. And so what I'll say is the same thing I said to my brother in Wenatchee, Washington. That is 99.9999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999
and without bottom. And to bring to light, to reveal, to uncover for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. And so we've shown what the plan is. The plan is to form a family for himself from all people. That is the plan. That has always been the plan. But look where he says it happens. Verse 10, so that, so that meaning after everything that I said, so that, Through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. I hope you don't read past that too quickly. There's a lot in those few words. The rulers and authorities in heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. One of my favorite quotes, and I use it all the time, actually I used it here Sunday and I'll use it again, uh, was from John R.W. Stott, the late John R.W. Stott. He said this, the church lies at the very center of the eternal purpose of God. It is not a divine afterthought. On the contrary, the church is God's new community. For its purpose, conceived in a past eternity, being worked out in history, and to be perfected in a future eternity. Do you hear what this man is saying here? His purpose, conceived in eternity past, before creation was ever birthed, worked out in history, that is everything from Genesis to the beginning of Revelation, and to be perfected in a future eternity, that's Revelation 21, is not just to save isolated individuals and so perpetuate our loneliness, but rather to build his church, that is, to call out of the world a people for his own glory. The church is not a divine afterthought. Listen, as a steward of this mystery, as a servant to this gospel, you need this reminder just as bad as I do. That when you're grinding through your calendar and when you're considering all of the counseling and when Sunday is weighing down on you on Thursday and you haven't gotten your word together and when ministry begins to feel like rote, routine, and lifeless obligation, never forget that what it is you are a part of is God's eternal plan in the world. This is not a divine afterthought. Listen, you don't have to say it, so I'll say it. I very much take the church for granted. I very much find myself in the posture of, oh, I got to do this again, rather than I get to do this again. Because this is God's plan. It is not a divine afterthought. You are not just grinding about your week, as it were, going through the motions to get a paycheck for preaching the gospel. No. You have been welcomed into the wonder 
of leading in God's glorious manifestation of the plan that he's had in place from the beginning of time. What would change if we all saw ministry that way? What would change in our budgets toward church planting if we actually understood that the church is the hope of the world? How would our energy be distributed differently? How would our outlook unfold itself differently? How differently would we handle the inevitable discouragement that comes along with leading in God's body? If we knew that it is not up to us to hold it together, that it is not up to us to grow his church, that it is not up to us to make it bigger, make it better, that it is not up to us even to make it more holy, but that God is the one holding his church together, that God is the one fulfilling his plan that he's laid out, that God is the one, and that the church is the thing that he always intended. The church is not a divine afterthought. Secondarily, the church is the locus of God's ultimate revelation. The church is the locus of God's ultimate revelation. Everything hidden for ages has not been revealed until it was revealed through the church. Everything. As a matter of fact, I believe we can say that, 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 that even the angels had to wait for God's manifold, complex, and varied wisdom to be revealed in his church. Is that not what it says here? Shall I read it again? So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. There is no sense in the original language that this is negative or, or evil. That there are in fact rulers and authorities among God's heavenly creatures, the angels, and even being beings that have been created by God to rule in authority over the heavenlies. They had to wait for the manifestation of God's wisdom in and through his church to understand the full plan of what God was unfolding folding on the earth. You think the church is less than important? Less than vital to the world? Oh, Brother Steve said it yesterday. You want to sink a well in the ground? Plant a church. You want to start a school? Plant a church. You want to see a city change? Plant a church. You want to, you want to see a nation change? Plant a church. Political parties come and go. Nonprofit organizations come and go. The only eternal institution is God's church. And we have the privilege of not only participating in it, but actually leading in it. My God. Yes, my God. Why? Why? Why would you entrust to your most fragile creatures a mystery that angels long to look into? 
And yet that's what he's done. That's what he's done. His manifold wisdom about the redemption of the world, his manifold wisdom about the reconciliation of peoples, his manifold wisdom about the church's existence as the very body of Christ, his manifold wisdom about the church's proclamation of the gospel that it would bear fruit in all the world, his manifold wisdom. Everything that God will reveal about his nature and about himself happens at the locus of his leading, which is in his church. And so how do we land this plane then? I'll say it with one simple phrase. Do not lose heart. Do not lose heart. For those of you who are planting your first church, it might bomb. It might Does it make you wrong for wanting to plant? Absolutely not. Does it mean you should stop trying? Absolutely not. For those of you who are sending out church planters, you're going to have some sons who hurt you very badly. Does it mean you stop sending sons and daughters? No. No. For those of you whose churches are presently struggling, struggling financially, struggling with identity, struggling with diversity, lose heart. Don't lose heart. Because what you are a part of is God's unfolding revelation. His eternal plans and purposes for rescuing the world. Genesis 3, the proto-euangelion, he would send one who would pave the way. Where the first Adam failed, the second Adam would succeed. And in his success, we walk in boldness and confidence. Believing. Not because we are good or right, but because he is good and perfect. That he has made us stewards. That he has revealed to us a peculiar mystery. And that he has given to us that eternal institution and that we, we fragile creatures have a part to play. Don't lose heart. Don't lose heart, brother. Don't lose heart. People are going to leave. They're going to lie. Don't lose heart for Christ has it and he will bring it to its ultimate end. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you that in our fragility, you have not deemed us unfit but more fit because it is your most fragile creatures who are most willing recipients of your grace and mercy. And so I pray now that where we are discouraged, where we feel unqualified, inept, where we have lost heart, that you would restore us now to gladness with this glorious reminder that this church, your church, the global church, is not some afterthought, not some reactionary plan to the fall of man, 
but the eternal institution you intended to wash over your world, proclaiming your good news and seeing wandering souls redeemed until you consummated in your glory. That is the end of the story after all. You with your people, fully revealed, all laid bare, intimacy as we can only now dream. Father, keep that vision before us as we suffer in leadership, as we steward and hold loosely what is yours, as we long to love better your church. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you, brothers and sisters.